I'll, I'll mention another trend, and this is a trend that's not unique to period care, but is very, very, very broad, is transparency in packaging, in information. We are talking about products in this market for which there's really no requirement for ingredient disclosure. And we are seeing there is a strong consumer trend towards transparency. But, you know, as a consumer health and safety trend in the femcare market, we're seeing companies revealing on the packages the product contents, even when it's not required. I would give you a good example of that would be NatraCare. And they are including ingredients in the products, ingredients in the wrapping, and the packaging itself to provide consumers with the information they want to have. Welcome to part three of our series on the menstrual health market. Last week, we learned about the size of the market, the growth potential it has, and which brands are succeeding as competition increases. But there's still a lot more to learn to continue to stand out in this market. How can you segment the market by age? And what are the habits and preferences of these different age groups? How are startup brands standing out? And what innovations are they bringing to the market? What are consumers expecting when it comes to transparency and sustainability? We learned last week that there's a lot of potential for growth in the menstrual health market, but brands will need to be flexible and really listen to their consumers in order to take advantage of that growth potential. And luckily, Bostic is here to help. Welcome to Attached to Hygiene, the podcast that enables you to grow your knowledge and influence in the disposable hygiene industry. I'm your host, Jack Hughes, Global Digital Marketing Manager for Bostic's Disposable Hygiene Business Unit. On today's episode, we'll wrap up our discussion with Cotton Inc. by discussing the different segments in the market and their preferences along with what innovations are coming. And then we'll learn more about how cotton is adjusting and evolving to become a more sustainable, renewable resource for the hygiene market. And, and looking into the future, it's important to understand how your markets and the consumers in those markets are evolving. So kind of towards that end, our research showed us that we can talk about three stages of feminine hygiene. The teenage years, the young adulthood, and the established adulthood. And they're all different, and they all have roles to play in this market. So let's just take a, a quick look at each one. Teenage years would be under age 20. And in this period of their life, women are focused on the physical challenge of the newly experienced menstruation. These consumers report the biggest impact of menstruation on their daily lives. Many of them begin using pads because that's the primary form of protection that has been provided to them. Initially, they rely a lot on relatives for education. As we mentioned, they're brand loyal, many of them out of necessity. 81% of the youngest ones say they always buy the same brand in part because they don't have the money, the transportation, or the online shopping accounts yet to explore new products, but, but they do get past that. When we take a look at our young adults in the age category of age 20 to 34, these consumers are less focused on the physical challenge of menstruation, more focused on navigating the emotional challenge of menstruation. 
and they're looking for products that fit into their lifestyles, okay? These women are out of, out of school for the most part. They're in the work world. They're more likely to say their periods impact going to work, whereas the younger ones said, oh, it just impacts my whole life. With greater autonomy, a third of these young adults report a financial change prompted them to try a new hygiene product. Okay, so there's another factor in making new decisions. Today's young adults are seeking more sustainable products. They're choosing cotton disposables that are biodegradable and reusable products such as menstrual cups and panties. Then when we take a brief look at our established adults, these would be over the age of 34. At this stage in their lives, these consumers have developed routines and many of them report that menstruation, quite frankly, has no impact on their life. They have figured out how to deal with this particular part of their, of their life. They know what works for their bodies. They combine products for custom protection when they need it. But just because they know what they like doesn't mean they're not open to new products, especially if a promotion is offered. A third of, of them told us they actually tried something new when they saw and that it was offered on sale. Okay, I'll give it a try. Hmm. Unless you think this group is aging out of this market, think again. They are heavy users. 56% of them told us they use feminine hygiene products between their periods. So don't, don't be so quick to write off that 35 plus age group. Yeah. And, and this was uh, something that came up in a, a conversation with, with someone else in, in the industry, Danielle Kaiser. And, and she mentioned pretty much the same thing. Don't, don't, don't sleep on this, this older group of users and even, even women who have, who have aged out of the need for, for menstrual products, but there, you know, there's still a whole they still have the rest of their lives to live, so they, there's a lot of opportunities there to please this this group of users with different products. So, yeah, it's absolutely, it's, uh, and, and recognize yeah. that they are the ones who are using the most number of products, and they're using them throughout the entire monthly cycle, not just when they are menstruating. Yeah, so they're yeah. very very important. Very interesting. Yes. So, so what are brands doing to try and target the different users in these different life stages? Yeah, that's a great question. And they are developing for the youngest group. They're developing packaging in cool colors. They're developing packages of products around menstruation, but not just products. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Bloom is a Canadian company, and they've developed a period package for the youngest consumers. And it is full of fun and information. In addition to products, they include essential oils, they include a heating pad for cramps, and they include educational information and games. So what we're seeing with these youngest consumers is they are having period parties, you know, <laughs> to break out each one of their friends. This is a part of growing up. It's no longer, oh, my God, where can I hide my pads when I have to take them to school with me? This is now we're, we're all about celebrating this next stage of life. Then we have nano pads by NanoCare. 
if we're talking about innovative products for these markets. They're producing pads that contain particles that emit infrared energy to help with menstrual cramping. Hmm. Days, D-A-Y-E apostrophe S, has CBD tampons. They have a cannabinoid infusion, which is also intended to help with menstrual cramps. Another company has taken the concept of medicinal diagnosis or medical diagnosis using menstrual blood. And they are in the end stage of developing a product, a pad, that can alert the user to their A1C measurement. Wow. So, (laughs) yeah, a tool for managing diabetes, right? And that's just the beginning, but the concept there being what information is resident within menstrual blood that can be used to help support information about our life and health. So, yeah, we're seeing all of those things happen out in the feminine hygiene market these days to address the needs of the youngest consumers and address some of the needs of of the established adults. Oh, some of the big brands are also producing products that can be used for menstruation and for light bladder control. And they are, by the way, putting them under the brand of the feminine hygiene products. So you can picture the emotional component as some consumers age and, you know, need to wear a pad for light bladder control. Or maybe we're talking about a woman who's just given birth and um, hasn't gotten all of that pelvic floor strength back to be able to buy a product that will support the bladder control needs and not have to go into the um, adult adult diaper section, shall I say, is a really great thing and speaks to a market need. There's a lot of ideas out there these days. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's great to, uh, you know, they're expanding their their product lines to be able to better support women in all in all different stages. I think it's really interesting, particularly around the some of the health screening type options out there, because it, it seems like a good opportunity to really track health you know, obviously, it's if you're using these products every month and able to pull data from them, it, it it can be a really good kind of barometer every month of of how your health is is trending and allow you to make the appropriate changes if if something isn't right, which I think is great because it obviously it's it's a little hard. I mean, you can obviously weigh yourself or or things like that, but um, it's a little harder to you know go to a doctor or get blood work done and things like that. But if you're able right. to do it through through products that you're already using certainly a lot of opportunity there for product growth, but also just for you know, improving health. Exactly. Exactly. I'll, I'll mention another trend in this market, and this is a trend that's not unique to, to period care, but is very, very, very broad, is transparency in packaging, in information. We are talking about products in this market for which there's really no requirement for ingredient disclosure. And we are seeing there is a strong consumer trend towards transparency and transparency in in lots of different kinds of products. But, you know, as a consumer health and safety trend in the fem care market, we're seeing companies revealing on the packages the product contents, even when it's not required. I would give you a good example of that would be NatraCare. And they are including ingredients in the products, 
ingredients in the wrapping and the packaging itself to provide consumers with the information they want to have. Now, there are other products in the market that are also moving in that direction, and they are putting on their packages what is not in the product. And that's helpful as well. You know, no perfumes or whatever ingredients they deem are potentially harmful and they want the consumer to know there's none of that in this package. So that's another trend that we're seeing in the marketplace to just provide the information that consumers want. And and this is something different than in decades past. Yeah, and I, we're going to have a whole episode dedicated to some of the changes around that, particularly in, in the United States, but also probably touching a little bit on Europe. But I would imagine in the eyes of some consumers, it seems, well, for lack of a better word, pretty crazy that products that are are very close to intimate areas or in some cases, as in tampons or, or inside of, of the body, don't have to have to put you know, ingredient disclosures on the labels uh, and stuff like that. So it's good to hear that companies are doing that voluntarily. And and I, I think you'd probably agree we're definitely going to see companies starting to do that because they're required to do it by regulatory bodies and governments. Yep. Yep. And we're also seeing the EU SUPD is, is driving more communication and product development as it relates to the plastics, for sure, whether Mm -hmm. it is plastics that are used in the product or whether it's plastics that are used in the packaging. Yes, all of that is shifting beneath us at this point in time. Yes, for sure. Yep, and it's it's great because it can only only benefit the consumers, which is which I think is what we're all we're all hoping for what we all want. Right. So interestingly, a part of the discussion that we've had with um, both in our quantitative and qualitative studies, and we would ask consumers, what do they think their period products are, are made of? And <laughs> as you might expect, by and large, their products are white and they're absorbent. And so they just think that there's cotton in them. So when they find out that there are other ingredients than cotton in those products, there's a high level of concern and a high level of interest in in more cotton in feminine hygiene products. We did a year and a half ago, a clinical study taking a look at cotton and we did cotton both in its natural state and in its purified state. And we had a lab, a clinical lab run a study to test for hypoallergenic or for skin irritations and found that Natural cotton, even with with the finish that Mother Nature has on the fiber when it comes out of the field, as well as in the purified form, which is certainly when it's the most absorbent, that neither one of those fiber forms created any irritation on any of the 400 individuals that half of them claimed to have sensitive skin, half of them did not. And none of them, not, not any of them, had any reaction to either form of cotton through this clinical trial. We've done work with Corman, a company out of Italy. Their brand is Organic with a Y. And they have done studies with gynecologists and patients, patients who, are, who tend to have skin irritations. And when those patients switched to using an all-cotton feminine hygiene product, it actually stimulated their skin to heal. So we have some good information behind the value of cotton in areas of the body in particular that are are most sensitive. Yeah, and no doubt we'll 
continue to see see the growth in the use of cotton and and other natural substrates as you know what we'll talk about here in a second as the the shift towards sustainability continues to grow but also as you mentioned just the kind of simple act of being better or or more beneficial or just better overall for for the the health of the user <laughs> and and I think to the point on what is in products the ingredients that are in products I think it'll be interesting to see if the regulations evolve to a point where companies need to disclose where the different ingredients are in the product. So if you have a, a cotton top sheet, but the rest of the, the product is, you know, a synthetic material, so synthetic non-woven, does that have to be disclosed somehow? Or if the, the absorbent part of a tampon is synthetic, but just the string is cotton. I mean, you could say there's cotton in there, but it doesn't tell the whole story. So it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves as as consumers start to advocate more for more of this information and um, learn more about what what's in their products. Right. We haven't talked about it, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But you know, we have these trademarks, the seal of cotton, and so forth, that are well known by consumers and help them to identify products that have cotton in them. But the reason why I bring this up has to do with your um, your mention of responsibility. And at Cotton Incorporated, we feel that we need to be responsible with information to consumers. So what I will say to you, just as a point of information, is that, for instance, if a company is making a product where the top sheet is cotton and what's underneath is not, we will license them to go to market with our trademark. However, we will require them to put somewhere that's obvious to the consumer on the packaging where the cotton can be found. So it's not like the cotton's way on the inside and doesn't really give you any any benefit. You, and they can say the cotton layer is next to the skin. So yes, Cotton Incorporated as a company, very concerned about being responsible in the way that our trademarks are being used. That's good to hear. That's it's good to hear that that's already you know happening in the industry and as a group that that can you know have some influence there that, that you're able to to take advantage of that for sure. All right, so. As you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Cotton Inc. is the, the the research and marketing arm representing cotton growers and importers of cotton and cotton textile products into different countries. So you obviously have a vested interest in seeing the use of cotton increase. And we we know, as, as we just discussed, cotton is a natural fiber, which means by nature, it is a renewable resource, which is great. But one of the criticisms of cotton is its environmental footprint. And obviously to grow a crop, you need you know, land and space, you need a lot of water. And there are other factors to consider like the release of carbon from soil when tilling the land for planting and using machinery to, to harvest and process the crops, also transportation and all, all sorts of other things. So with those criticisms in mind, what are cotton farmers doing to ensure the footprint of this you know, important renewable resource that ends up being equal to or less than the footprint of man-made or synthetic alternatives? Yeah, that is a, that is a big question. I would say we could talk about that for hours, but we won't. Let's begin this discussion, however, with recognizing that sustainability is a journey, it's not an endpoint. That everything that any of us does has consequences and that making decisions that are better for the environment along the way and still meeting the needs, our needs, is 
the pathway that the cotton growers and the cotton users have been following for many, for maybe a hundred years, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Growers are business people. They understand that the way to make the highest profit is to produce a high quality product with as few input resources as is needed. So, so I like for people to understand that Cotton Incorporated in particular has been working in conjunction with universities, many, many universities who have agricultural programs, as well as working within industry organizations like um, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition and, and others in order to support the continued effort toward being more sustainable while being able to satisfy the demands of all of the marketplaces. So towards that end, I can tell you that we've got, we have some research results over the past 35 years from the cotton industry as it relates to an environmental footprint and different categories of resources. And I I would like to share some of that progress with you. And okay. let's start with land. So modern production practices allow U.S. cotton growers to achieve high levels of soil conservation and input efficiencies. And in doing so, over the last 35 years, we have increased yields 109%. So what we're talking about is progress in process and technology to allow for the doubling of output on the same, or even in some cases, less land. And where less land can be used, much of it is being turned over to reestablish habitats for the natural wildlife that live in those areas. So that's one thing on land. The other progress that's been made with respect to land has to do with soil loss, right? You till the plants under and you see this brown field, which previously had been viewed as a beautiful brown tilled field. But when that's done, it can leave the topsoil open to wind and rain erosion. There's much more work done these days with planting what are called cover crops to hold the soil in place. And over this 35-year period that we're talking about, soil loss has been reduced 37%. Okay, now let's move to water because that's always the big one that everybody thinks, oh my God, cotton is a water hog. It's actually a drought tolerant plant. Hmm. Over half of the U.S. crop is grown in West Texas as a dry land crop. So I don't think there's anybody that's thinking that West Texas is a rainforest. (laughs) And a dry land crop is one that gets no supplemental water, no irrigation. Water is an important input for growing cotton, but water is an important input for growing anything like corn or wheat or, you know, soybeans. It's just, this is, this is what agriculture is about, right? You know, you have your seeds, you have your soil, you have your water, you have your sunshine. Basically, those are the ingredients that go into growing cotton and, quite frankly, growing a lot of other crops as well. About two-thirds of the cotton grown in the U.S. produces dry land cotton. It gets no irrigation. So want you to know that in the places where irrigation is used from time to time, that use has declined 
80%. Preserving the aquifers is really important. Okay, let's go on to air. In the agricultural production phase, okay, so that would be planting a seed through harvesting the cotton. Cotton's actually carbon negative when accounting for the biogenic carbon that is naturally sequestered in the fiber, in the plant, and in the soil. When considering this carbon negative aspect scaled for global production, and we look at 2020, the amount of carbon removed from the atmosphere is equivalent to removing almost 650,000 passenger vehicles from the road each year. So when we talk about the fuel use, the energy, and so forth, just remember these farmers and growers, they're business people. They don't want to, if they need to irrigate a field, they have to pump the water up, okay? There's a cost associated with that, just as there is a cost associated in harvesting in all of the stages along the way of producing cotton. And that's really, when you look at it as a production system, it's not different than anything else. So let's move on to energy. For every pound of cotton fiber that's produced, there is a pound 0.6 cotton seeds. The energy stored in these cotton seeds can be used directly as bioenergy. It is also used indirectly as um, and in demand for feed for dairy cows because the oil inside those seeds is very high in protein and it actually produces higher protein milk. Mm. So in using some of this cottonseed oil as bioenergy on the farms, energy use per pound of cotton produced has actually decreased 54% over our 35-year period. Great. Here's another one that that's always that's an easy one to target, and that's the use of pesticides, right? Pesticides enable farmers to protect the yields and produce abundancy and affordable supply of, in this case, food and fiber because the cotton seeds actually are used as food. But plant chemistry is expensive. <laughs> and growers are very aware of the impact of a runoff on eutrophication in, you know, fresh water systems. There has been, over our 35 years, a 76% reduction in the pounds of insecticides applied per pound of cotton produced. It's not yet perfect. We haven't found the ultimate solution, but we're making progress on this journey. Lastly, I would like to touch upon biodegradability. Cotton is 100% cellulose. It biodegrades in soil, in home composting, in industrial composting, in fresh water. And we have done studies recently with organic waste systems in Europe as input for applying for the biodegradability certifications. And they also showed that cotton does not impact the life or mobility of microorganisms in fresh water. So it's just a good choice for products that are going to be thrown away in a compost pile or in an industrial composting, or it won't persist in, in fresh water or in seawater. And I will say lastly, with respect to sustainability, 
both Cotton Incorporated and the markets we serve are doing a lot of work with post-industrial cotton and most recently with post-consumer cotton to find ways to turn the post-industrial maybe t-shirt clippings back into fiber and find places where they can bring value to products. So now we've moved past sustainability into circularity. And, mm-hmm. and I just want the audience to, un- to know that we're doing work on both of those fronts. And if they would like to know more about that, we would be happy to share more details about that. But we feel that circularity is, is a very, very important part of our futures. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we would agree with that as well. And it's it's great to hear about the the steps that Cotton Inc. and the cotton industry are taking. As you said, it's a, it's a journey. It's a journey and we can't get there overnight. It's going to be a step-by-step process. And it's obviously true for, for cotton. And as you mentioned, the progress made over the last 35 years, it's certainly true for the disposable hygiene industry as a whole. We're definitely taking steps. And yes, everyone would like to get to kind of the end result quicker, but it takes time. It takes investment. It takes resources. It takes learning new things. But I think, as you mentioned, the important thing is is progress, which is what we're all doing. We're all progressing towards that ultimate goal of producing the most sustainable products possible. And I did want to make one note. <laughs> you mentioned that cotton can degrade in, in water and, and it doesn't have a negative impact on the, the bio life in, in source systems and things like that. I just want to make one, one caveat. Please do not flush any products that are not approved to be flushed on the toilet. Just because you heard that they're, they're biodegradable, that is true. But check with your, lo- your local uh, municipalities and your water treatment facilities to, to see what products are okay to flush and which are not. So I just want to make that the little caveat there. Couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> so but that, that could be a whole nother podcast about what people flush down the toilet because it's some, there's some interesting stuff out there. But yes, yeah, so before we sign off here, Jan, you mentioned having people reach out and learn more about cotton and, and cotton ink and the work you're doing and also learn about and access some of the research that, that you're doing as a, as an industry player. Um, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your, your hub for, for that information. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to give you two websites and an email. Our B2B platform is cottonworks.com. Cottonworks is one string.com. If you want to know more, you can certainly go there. If you want to know more about non-wovens, I would recommend that you click on topics and go down to non-wovens and you'll find information there. But I also want you to know that we have a separate website dedicated to sustainability information. And the name of that website is cottontoday.cottoninc.com. And so I would encourage you to go out to Cotton Today and uh, read whatever is of interest to you on that platform. And lastly, of course, with my retirement very soon, but who's counting days, <laughs> um, I would like you all to have Megan Holiday's email since she will be your portal to all things cotton. And I'll spell that out for you. It's M-H-O-L-L-I-D-A-Y at cottoninc.com. And Great. I wish all of you all the best. <laughs> and we'll we'll certainly link to all those in the show notes as well and, and uh, make sure that that those are available to anyone who would like to learn more on on any of those or or obviously, as you said, reach out to Megan. So 
Jan, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing all the findings from, from your study on the, the feminine care and menstrual health market. We obviously greatly appreciate it. And as I said at the beginning, best of luck in retirement and congratulations. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be with all of you today, and I'm looking forward to being retired, and I'm wishing all of you success in life. Best. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. In our next episode, we'll be sharing the second half of our discussion with Danielle Kaiser, where we'll discuss many of the megatrends in the world of menstrual health. If you have not done so, I once again highly encourage all of you to sign up for our Attached to Hygiene newsletter. Every two weeks, we'll notify you of the release of our latest episode, and in our next few newsletters, we'll be sharing a lot of information around the menstrual health market, including a few white papers from Bostic, plus some great content from our guests like Matami and Cotton Inc. So if you want to stay up to date on everything we and our guests know about industry topics like menstrual health, Check out the link in the show notes to sign up for our Attached to Hygiene newsletter. Attached to Hygiene is brought to you by Bostic and is hosted by me, Jack Hughes. It is produced and edited by me with the help of Paul Andrews, Michelle Tonkovitz, Emery Chernis, and Nikki Ackerman at Green Onion Creative. Our theme music is by Jonathan Boyle. We'd also like to extend a special thank you to our guest, Jan O'Regan. Although Jan is retiring, she will still be on LinkedIn and you can also connect with her colleague, Megan Holiday, who will be taking over for Jan at Cotton Inc. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.